Now, our next speaker has a very special place in my affections because he gave the very first talk at the very first Faith of Our Fathers conference back in 1996. And it gives me great pleasure, therefore, to be able to introduce him again today. A priest of the Archdiocese of Westminster since his ordination in 1990, Father Wadsworth has worked in schools, hospitals and universities, as well as serving the parishes of Camden Town, Marylebone and Spanish Place. He is currently the full-time Roman Catholic chaplain to Harrow School, where he cares for the school's 120 Catholic boys, as well as being head of Italian. Educated by the Marist brothers, he holds degrees in music, Italian and theology from Trinity College of Music, the Royal Academy of Music, University College London and the Pontifical University of Maynooth. He is active as a conference speaker and lecturer and has addressed the Pro Fide Forum, the Faith of Our Fathers Conference, the CL Symposium, and the International Theological Conference on Mary Co-Redemptrix. Speaking on the second part of the Catechism, Father's talk is entitled, Celebrating the Mystery, the Sacraments in the Catechism. Will you please welcome Father Andrew Wadsworth. Can I begin by saying what an immense pleasure it is to be here uh, this morning. The keynote which our chairman sounded at the beginning of today's proceedings was one of, of celebration. And it's a wonderful thing to have an opportunity to celebrate our Catholic faith. I was thinking just during Father's very enthusiastic presentation of the, of the truth of the catechism, what a wonderful thing it is to be in the church. What a wonderful thing it is to be in the church. We, we want to make that, that prayer every morning, I think. It ought to be part of our morning offering. Thank you, Lord, in your love and in your mercy, calling me to be a member of your Catholic Church. I, th I think we, we take far too much for granted as far as all of that's concerned. Uh, we're looking today with very great seriousness at the reception of the Catechism, its contents, and perhaps in some very important ways, which I hope to consider in my own remarks, the consequences in this 10-year period in this country of the work of the Catechism, how far we've come and how far we still have to go. At the time of the promulgation of the Catechism of the Catholic Church and ten years ago at the time of its publication in English, there was much discussion and even heated debate regarding the Catholicity of its formulations. The French edition, being the first to be published, elicited an immediate response in the form of two polemical pamphlets. The first challenged the orthodoxy of the catechism and was published under the aegis of the Society of St. Pius X, Le Catechisme est-il catholique? 
The second defended the orthodoxy of the catechism published under the aegis of the Abbey of St. Madeleine Le Barou, Le Catechisme, oui, c'est catholique. Much recourse was, of course, made to the previous benchmarks, which Father has already mentioned, of the catechisms of the Council of Trent and of St. Pius X. And while I believe that there is value in careful consideration of the theological exactitude of the catechism's formulations, I have to say that it's not going to be my concern here. As I wish to consider the impact of the catechism in the light of subsequent developments in the church's sacramental life. I think we have to admit that the catechism was published in this country at a time of catechetical confusion. Many of us believed that it was at that stage a far more confident account of the Catholic faith than might have been expected. Given that up until that time, catechetical materials had offered a diverse and rather equivocal presentation, and perhaps nowhere more obviously, within the realm of the sacraments. The necessary catechesis in preparation for the sacraments of baptism, confession, holy communion, confirmation and marriage had long since produced a plethora of materials as diverse in their doctrine as in their presentation. I'm sure there's not a person present in this hall this morning who has not had ample experience of that fact. Now at last there was a sure norm for teaching Catholic doctrine, as well as an authentic reference text for the preparation of catechetical materials. The Holy Father, as we've already heard, expressed himself unambiguously, stating that the catechism would henceforth be the essential point of reference in the Church's catechetical endeavour. When we consider the contribution of the catechism in relation to the sacraments, any assessment of its impact must begin with a consideration of the inescapable principle, which we've already heard enunciated, the lex orandi, lex credendi. Or as the Catechism of the Catholic Church also states, the legem credendi, lex statuat supplicandi. What we believe is evidenced in our worship. Or perhaps more worryingly for the Church of our time, in the manner of our worship. The truths of our faith in the sacraments are kept alive supremely in their celebration, rather than any form of words that defines their content or comments on their efficacy. For this reason, I do not intend to offer a digest of the Catechism's teaching on the sacraments. You can, and you should, read that for yourself. And I think over a period of time, the systematic reading of the section on the catechism, in the catechism regarding the sacraments, is a very profitable endeavour. I wish to consider rather the direct impact of the promulgation of the catechism of the Catholic Church on four specific subsequent events, which I personally believe are a direct consequence of that fact, 
and eloquent testimony to its importance for the life of the church. The four events that I have chosen are, firstly, the promulgation of the third typical edition of the Missale Romanum on the 10th of April in the year 2000, that is, the new version of the Roman Missal, which will subsequently result in new vernacular translations. Secondly, I've chosen the encyclical of the Holy Father, Ecclesia de Eucharistia, of May the 17th of the year 2003. This concerns the Eucharist in its relationship to the Church. The third event that I've chosen is the instruction of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments, Redemptionis Sacramentum, on certain matters to be observed or avoided in the celebration of the Most Holy Eucharist. And that document was published on the 23rd of April this year. The final event that I'm going to make reference to is the year of the Eucharist announced by the Holy Father on the Feast of Corpus Christi this year, June the 10th, which will continue until October 2005, when the Synod of Bishops meets to consider matters relating to the Blessed Eucharist. In my opinion, these four events centre unambiguously on the Holy Eucharist, around which the whole liturgical life of the Church revolves. Although much of what is said here might also apply to the other sacraments, it is, of course, the Eucharist supremely as the source and summit of the Church's life that is our concern. The advanced publicity surrounding the revision of the Latin edition of the Roman Remissal understandably caused considerable concern. Early suggestions hinted at multiple options for the structuring of the early part of the Mass, making such features as the penitential rite optional. These fears proved unfounded when the Missal was finally promulgated without any change in the form of the Mass. Why do I think that this is in some way connected to the Catechism? Interestingly, the Catechism begins to grapple with one of the burning issues of our time in relation to the liturgy the relationship between liturgical change and continuity. The Catechism expresses it in these terms, and I quote, In the liturgy, above all that of the sacraments, there is an immutable part, a part that is divinely instituted, and of which the Church is the guardian, and parts that can be changed, which the Church has the power and on occasion also the duty to adapt to the cultures of recently evangelized peoples. That's the end of the quotation. That gives us a clear context for the adaptation of the liturgy in its most narrow and hitherto clearly defined form. That is, the introduction of the sacramental life of the Catholic Church in places where formerly people were not Christian in places where people were formerly not Christian. That does not, in my opinion, refer to the church in these aisles. 
It does not extend or amplify the earlier injunctions which encourage some people towards endless innovation and experimentation. In the most definitive liturgical text, the celebration of the holy sacrifice of the Mass is presented in a way that seems to suggest that certain features or characteristics of the sacred liturgy are normative and should always be clearly discernible in every liturgical celebration. Of course, this comes in the wake of liturgical anarchy, when many have taken the law into their own hands and have seen fit to inflict on us what can only be described as grotesque distortions of the true character of the sacraments. I don't need to give the examples because everyone here knows about it. I would invite you to consider that the promulgation of the most recent edition of the Roman Missal is the first indication of a recovery of confidence in the immutable quality of the Mass and in an age of multiple lay ministries, a clear restatement of the unambiguous centrality of the ministerial priesthood in the celebration of the Eucharistic mystery. For some, this obviously does not go far enough. But I would suggest that it is this recovery, and that's the word that I'm going to have recourse to continually, because I think if we're to take hope from the publication of the Catechism, we have to see what positive effect it has and can have. That recovery, signalled initially in the Catechism, is endorsed and developed in each of the events which I have chosen to refer to. Significant also in this element of the recovery is the readmission to the Church's liturgical calendar of a number of feasts which were previously omitted. And this is something which I particularly personally rejoice in. One thinks here principally of the return of the wonderful feast of the Holy Name. The insertion of the feasts of Our Lady of Fatima, the feast of St. Maximilian Kolbe, of St. Louis de Montfort, of St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. In each case, the recovery is far more than simply within the realm of liturgy and represents a serious development and recovery of important theological ideas which these feasts celebrate, strengthening the church's liturgical life. Furthermore, and perhaps importantly in practical terms, there is an obvious correction of a number of liturgical abuses. This is evident in the Revised General Instruction, which prefaces the Missal, and which was published greatly in advance of the Missal itself, presumably in the hope that action would be taken at the earliest opportunity to correct abuses where necessary. We all have our part to play in that regard. Obviously, the correction of liturgical abuse, if it's to be effective, has to be the responsibility of the whole church. The bishops, in the first instance, priests who cooperate most closely with them, but you, every member, every lay member of the church has a responsibility in this regard. And there are authoritative documents in, the, in place now which make that whole process possible. 
The greatest contribution, I think, of the new general instruction to the Roman Missal is the reintroduction of the idea of rubrics which govern the liturgical celebration, rather than the more nebulous notion of liturgical norms, which we've been uh, subject to for a long time now, and which are endlessly used to justify interpretation, personal interpretation, and experimentation. Although the Missal does not make explicit reference to the Catechism by way of quotation, it is clear that this confident approach is in many ways the direct consequence of the more robust theological formulations of the Catechism. This was particularly evident in the presentation of the Missal made by the President of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments, Cardinal Medina Estevez, in which he describes the responsibility of the church in, and I quote, safeguarding that which is called the unitas substantialis, the substantial unity of the Roman rite, an element that must remain unaltered as a testimony to the indefectible tradition of the church. It's an end to the quotation. He then goes on to use the same formulation cited in the Catechism, the Lex Orandi Legim Statuat Credendi, which through the liturgical books expresses the sensus fidei of the church. Is it too much to expect that in discovering the unchanging nature of divine revelation as expressed in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, that we are also regaining confidence in facing the challenge of interpreting liturgical tradition with similar fidelity. I hope it's not too much to think that that is the case. Of course, provision for the practical aspects of the church's sacramental life in the preparation of authoritative liturgical texts goes hand in hand with a restatement and clarification of the church's theological tradition concerning the sacraments. And I think that you will find that greatly in evidence in the sacramental section of the Catechism. The document which, in my opinion, represents the greatest aspect of recovery in this sense is the Holy Father's relatively recent encyclical letter on the Eucharist, Ecclesia de Eucharistia. And I'd encourage you to read that. It's a deeply moving and personal letter of a life in the priesthood and a life of living with the Mass. In the heart of this impressive text, the catechism is greatly in evidence and is used by the Holy Father in support of the key theological ideas of the transcendent nature of Christ's saving work. He quotes the catechism in saying, all that Christ is, all that he did and suffered for all men, participates in the divine eternity and so transcends all time. He speaks of the perpetuation of Christ's sacrifice in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. The Mass is at the same time and inseparably the sacrificial memorial in which the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is perpetuated and the sacred banquet of communion with the Lord's body and blood. That's a quotation from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1382. 
He also comments on the fact that Christ's sacrifice and the sacrifice of the Mass are one single sacrifice. Quoting from the Catechism, paragraph 1367, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. Perhaps the greatest long-term contribution of this encyclical will be its courageous admission of the baleful overshadowing of the sacrificial nature of the Mass in so many contemporary liturgical celebrations. This was rendered easier by the restatement of that doctrine in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Being able to admit that there is a problem, that things have got out of balance, is greatly assisted by recourse to the theological formulations of the Catechism. The clear catechesis on the Church's sacramental theology at this time highlights the serious need to confront widespread abuse in the celebration of the liturgy. This followed in the form of the recent instruction of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments, Redemptionis Sacramentum, on certain matters to be observed or to be avoided regarding the Most Holy Eucharist. It's interesting to note, I think, that this document cites the origin of such liturgical abuses, and I quote, in the seeds of discord which daily experience shows to be so deeply ingrained in human nature as a result of sin. It's a good formulation, that is. Liturgical abuse is a result of sin. Against which, I quote, there stands the creative unity of Christ's body. In this it quotes the aforementioned encyclical, which itself mirrors the catechism when it states, this is the catechism in uh, paragraph uh, 1396. The unity of the mystical body, the Eucharist, makes the church. Those who receive the Eucharist are united more closely to Christ. Through it, Christ unites them, all of them, the faithful body, the church. I think I'm right in saying that these formulations, which stand as an ongoing explanation of the implication of this teaching, are the first evidence in recent years of such a powerful identification of the church's unity with the unity of liturgical practice. An idea which was, of course, more commonly cited before the reforms which followed the Second Vatican Council, when liturgical practice was, as we've already heard, universal and not diverse. In addressing a thorny problem, the document largely follows the approach of the sacramental catechesis of the catechism, stating the theological foundation for the church's sacramental life, then outlining the particular responsibilities of the diocesan bishop. I was interested to read recently of a very prominent uh, German archbishop who had written in a pastoral letter that he would no longer consider the objections of the laity of his diocese unless they signed their letters. I thought that was an interesting detail. He has to consider the objections 
of the laity of his diocese with relation to liturgical abuse. And really, in one sense, signing the letter perhaps is a small price to pay for the relative effectiveness of making the complaint. The Conference of Bishops, their their responsibilities are outlined, as are those of priests and deacons in relation to the sacred liturgy. It then details the norms regarding the participation of lay Christian faithful in the Eucharistic uh, celebration, a chapter which is then subsequently balanced by a later chapter which deals with the extraordinary functions of the lay faithful. That qualification, extraordinary, seems conveniently to have dropped from some people's uh, presentation of these ministries in the liturgy. This document is part of a recovery of balance in that respect thereby recovering the particular and complementary dignity of both ordained and lay members of the church, an area of considerable confusion for some years since Vatican II. In all cases, and in the considerable addressal of these problems of liturgical abuse, there is constant recourse to the theological principles which the Catechism represents in their most authoritative recent form. Having promulgated the texts, having restated the theology, having identified the abuses, there only remains the task of putting it all into practice. Of course, this is our greatest challenge. Texts have to be received. Translations have to be made and authorised. Theology has to be taught. Catechesis has to be moulded faithfully to orthodox formulations. Abuses have to be corrected. And the process has in some way to be policed. Now we come in many ways to the greatest task. But a task which would not be possible in any way without all of the earlier stages of preparation which I choose to trace back to the publication of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The fourth and final moment in this process I identify as the recent feast of Corpus Christi and the Holy Father's Sermon at the Mass and Eucharistic Procession which traditionally takes place on that occasion at the Basilica of St. John Lateran. The Holy Father preached on a familiar text from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He began his homily with a formulation which sums up the corrective emphasis of the treatment of the Eucharist in the Catechism. The corrective emphasis. No correction would be necessary if the balance had been maintained. But there's a clear admission that that's not the case. With these words, St. Paul reminds the Christians of Corinth that the Lord's Supper is not only a convivial meeting, but also, and above all, the memorial of the redeeming sacrifice of Christ. There we have it. Not only a convivial meeting, but above all, the memorial 
of the redeeming sacrifice of Christ. How many of the problems of liturgical abuse and liturgical practice generally in the parishes in this country are summed up in that formulation? Very many, I would suggest. To my mind, this echoes the confident formulation of the catechism definition of the Eucharist, which states, I quote, The Eucharist is the memorial of Christ's Passover, the making present and the sacramental offering of his unique sacrifice in the liturgy of the church, which is his body. The Holy Father then continues by announcing a special year of the Eucharist, beginning with the World Eucharistic Congress on October the 10th in Mexico and ending with the Synod of Bishops in Rome in October of next year, whose theme will be the Eucharist, source and summit of the life and mission of the Church. I see this as a culmination of a process of resacralization of the liturgy, a restatement of the Church's tradition in sacramental theology, a corrective of liturgical praxis, a reinvigoration of sacramental catechesis, and an encouragement to all of us to live a richer sacramental life, whose origin I identify in the publication of the Catechism of the Catholic Church in this country ten years ago. As Catholics, our experience of God's grace comes largely through the sacramental life of the Church, which the Catechism describes as the manner in which Christ, I quote, now lives and acts within his Church. I think we can be genuinely grateful to God for this gift to the Church as we reflect on what I suggest to be the obvious benefits which have come to us in the time since its publication. The initiation, and we have to say initiation because it's a process far from complete, of the clarification of liturgical texts, the restatement, and how necessary that has been, of orthodox sacramental theology, the correction of liturgical abuse, which I think is beginning in a modest way, and importantly, the call to a deeper sacramental life. Obviously, the power of these gestures is contingent upon other factors, and I'm not suggesting in any of my remarks this morning that this is the magic wand which makes everything come right. The new text will have to be translated and anyone who's followed the recent correspondence in the tablets will know what a difficult task that is going to be. Although the initial translations of the Missal seem to be rather promising, what we finally get after the bishops have sifted through it all remains to be seen. Catechetical programs have to be prepared and perhaps more importantly implemented which reflect the content and emphasis of the Catechism. We still have a long way to go in that respect. There's plenty of work to be done, both in the generation of catechetical materials that reflect the Catechism and in the use of those materials. How fed up I am in my 
peregrination around this diocese of seeing the tyranny of the golden book still in use in relation to First Holy Communion. All of that should be superseded now. We have a norm which makes that clear. The correction of liturgical abuse in the celebration of the sacred liturgy. Abuses need to be identified. And as a priest, can I encourage you that your priests may need encouragement in that respect, in the identification of liturgical abuse with charity. With charity. If it's to be effective, the gentle suggestion that something which is done is not in accordance with the minds of the church might be the beginning of a process not only of the correction of that, that abuse, but also of a correction of the mentality which it represents. In that, I would suggest that you, dear brothers and sisters, have a very considerable role to play. Of course, the correction of liturgical abuse ultimately relies on the vigilance and zeal of our bishops and priests. That, I would suggest to you, is also a suggestion, an encouragement in a petition for prayer. Pray for priests, that they will respond faithfully to the call of the catechism, that they will respond faithfully to the Holy Father's call for the correction of liturgical abuse. As to the deepening of the sacramental life, which is an invitation to all of us, that will depend on our own willingness to hear the message of Christ, a message which comes to all of us, which is, I believe, faithfully transmitted in the catechism of the Catholic Church, and the application of that truth more perfectly to our lives, both individually and collectively. I hope if this day, this great day, is to serve any real long-term purpose, it will encourage all of us to read and study the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Maybe have to take it down off the shelf blow the dust off it and be courageous in starting to read it. The invitation to come and speak at this conference reinvigorated my own reading of the Catechism and I have to say that I've been greatly encouraged in so doing. Read and study the Catechism because if we do that and if all of us do it sufficiently then we can make a great contribution to its effectiveness. And perhaps that contribution will be no more evident than it is in the sacramental life of our church. Thank you.